Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael. And welcome to a very special episode, bonus episode of Texas History Lessons, where we're going to take a look at something that's kind of controversial. I've said since the beginning, I try to keep my own personal bias out of things. That's impossible for a historian to do, as we'll see. Everybody that looks at something brings it through their own filter of experience and understanding and knowledge. And I'm going to be showing a personal journey I've had where I've had to deal with some misunderstanding in my past about this sensitive subject. And my goal is not to offend or anger anyone, but if you find yourself getting angry with some of the things I share, it's okay to get angry with my personal opinion that I will be sharing. But if you get angry about some of the facts I share, then you need to take a look and ask yourself a question. Why am I angry about this being actual historical fact? Because I have tried to stick as close to as factual information as I can and set context for the time from when the statues first started getting put up until there was a giant rise during two specific periods in our past when so many of these statues were erected and set their narrative straight as to why they were erected. So with that said, I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you learned something from it as I did. And thanks for listening. Now I'm going to slide into a little special intro to this very very special episode and then we'll, we'll we'll take a look at the history of confederate statues and should they stay or should they go Calhoun Street here in the city of Charleston. We, we believe this is a hate crime. That's how we're investigating it. I'm just here to defend my heritage, and my heritage is not that of slavery. My family never owned slaves. I don't have any slaves. You will not replace us! You will not replace us! You will not replace us!
police officer. At least seven bullets were fired. Save your Confederate money. Be proud of your rebel because South's going to do it again. particularly focused on domestic terrorism, especially racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists. Not only is the terror threat diverse, it's unrelenting. Since the day of June 17, 2015, when a Confederate heritage-loving white supremacist entered the historic Charleston, South Carolina, Mother Emanuel American Methodist Episcopal Church, sat in attendance at a Bible study, and then proceeded to wound five and murder nine human beings, the presence of Confederate symbolism especially those of the Confederate battle flag and Confederate statues, have become an issue of great attention and divisiveness across the United States. Everyone wounded and killed were attacked because they were black. These are the names of the dead at that one atrocity. Clementa C. Pickney, age 41. Cynthia Marie Graham Hurd, age 54. Susie Jackson, age 87. Ethel Lee Lanch, age 70. DePayne Middleton, age 49. Tawanza Sanders, age 26. Daniel L. Simmons, age 74. Sharonda Coleman Singleton, 45. And Myra Thompson, 59. That awful event followed by many more divisive events, like the August 12, 2017 Charlottesville, Virginia Unite to Right rally, where a self-proclaimed right supremacist drove his car into a crowd and killed Heather Heyer and injured 19 other people. There's been increased outrage over people dying from over-aggressive police use of force. People are getting tired of hearing about unarmed people being shot by police officers. There appears to be a rise of comfortability with public displays of white pride. All of these things and more combined to create a bomb of outrage that exploited the day George Floyd repeatedly said, I can't breathe, and then died after allegedly using a counterfeit $20 bill to buy a pack of cigarettes. Protests erupted across the country. A few were dangerous, but the overwhelming majority, over 93%, or possibly even higher, were completely peaceful and not destructive at all. There was a resurgence to remove Confederate monuments, especially those that stand on public property, like the ones that are on courthouse lawns and in parks. A lot of different voices came together to support the removal of the statues, and some of the issues promoted along with the issue of statue removal at protests have 
clouded some people's visions that are in opposition. They let the issues that they hear people talking about cloud their judgment on whether a statue should come down or not. Because people that are passionate about the lives of black Americans call out Black Lives Matter or call for an end to police brutality or call for an end of people dying by getting shot by police. Some people seem to be increasingly easily offended about these things and they come out in counter-protest against removing statues. Or the people that stand in public against the people calling for the removal of Confederate statues believe that this is just all a part of a big socialist, atheistic, baby-killing, Antifa-loving, George Soros-funded plot to weaken and destroy the United States of America. Oh no, you might be thinking. You're exaggerating. People aren't like that. Surely no one is saying things like that. Or you might agree that the last statement is true. Now, if you believe... That last statement I said, you probably don't want to listen to the rest of this episode. Or maybe you actually are the person that should listen to this. Because I'm speaking directly to you if you actually believe that. Now here's full disclosure. I used to be a person who believed that Confederate statues needed to be left alone. So they could stand, as I thought, as educational tools. Put a plaque up, I thought. Don't erase history. Well, I don't believe that anymore. Removing a statue, removing a statue, a block down the street off of public property is not erasing history. History is what we're talking about right now. You're not erasing the history. History is in the books. History is in our minds. History is in the records, the actual documents that we have. Not in some made-up fairy tale that isn't history that I grew up with and enjoyed because of the adventure and the chivalry and the portrayal of honorable people going about doing honorable things for just causes that they believed in. I personally believe that Confederate statues on public property, especially those in front of courthouses, should be moved. I'm not saying destroyed. And it's my right as a citizen of the United States to say this, just like it's your right to completely disagree or make a counter-argument. I'm not saying you don't have that right. You're completely welcome to it. I'm going to share why I think they should be removed or removed. And I'm not trying to make you think otherwise, but I'm just going to try to share the history and the facts as to why I came to this conclusion. I also make full disclosure that I have attended protests calling for the removal of a local Confederate statue. And I'm going to tell you, I am not a socialist. I'm not an atheist. I don't support baby killing. I'm not an Antifa-loving George Soros-paid tool that wants to destroy the United States of America. And the fact is, all of those things I've heard from people while I stood in support of moving a statue. And I've heard much worse 
I've seen some ugliness come out in opposition. While on the side I'm standing in, standing with diverse, every age group from little kids to people in their 80s, every color, every every gender, Like I said, I love the United States. I love I love Texas, but I do believe that acknowledging wrongdoing and even evil that's happened in the past, even if it happened in the history of our state or country, it's necessary to acknowledge it. And after looking at the history of Reconstruction, the rise of the KKK, the Jim Crow era, the cultural and social manipulation of people's attitudes towards black Americans in the post-war era up into the 50, 1950s and during the time that most of these statues were put up, I believe that the side wanting them removed and moved have a very strong case. In this very special episode, I'm going to try to discuss the history of Confederate monuments and my personal change of opinion from believing that they should be left alone and believing that the South had a great history. And I do believe the South has a great history. But there's this there's a song by a band, I know the name's kind of off-putting, possibly Drive-By Truckers, it's called The Southern Thing, where they talk about the duality of the Southern thing in which the lead singer and his name is Patterson hood. He sings about dealing up, growing up in the South, being born in Alabama and coming to terms with the good and the bad, acknowledging all the things that were wrong. And let's move past that while embracing all the things that make the South beautiful and make America beautiful. But you can't ignore one and have the other. I'm going to have a special focus on two statues in my local area that stand in the city of Gainesville, the county seat of Cook County, Texas. Now, Cook County and Gainesville personally have played a large role in my life. My mother's family was from there. One of my grandmother's ancestral relatives has a small town named after them. A young girl that was in her family that died. They named the, the little town after after her. Her name was Ira Hargrove. And I remember my granny telling me stories about this. And I never really believed it till I... I did believe it. You know, as a kid, you kind of wonder if it's true. And it, it turns out it was true. I spent a lot of time growing up on my grandfather's farm, many summers in Cook County. And when we went to town, my mother would go to town with her mother. We'd go to Gainesville. My entire life has been focused around Gainesville in large part. I've worked in Gainesville. I like Cook County. I have family in Cook County. It's a, it's a good place, but there are some negatives that need to be acknowledged. And that's just that's just that's just fact. 
Now, if you're already mad about this, then maybe you shouldn't listen. I'm not trying to anger anyone, as I've said. For me, it has nothing to do with politics. Politics is not a political issue at all for me. I've had conversations with people about it. doesn't matter to them either where you stand on what the, the party spectrum. I don't care about that when it comes to this. For me, it's a matter of fairness, understanding, empathy, and education. So if you can handle that, and if you believe in civilized discussion and the safe exchange of information and ideas, if you love history, even when it is ugly, then let's take a look at the history of Confederate monuments and the issue of removing or maintaining them. A man that I have a lot of respect for messaged me the following when I announced I was going to do this episode. To quote him, he said, Sometimes we tend to think history is just an objective truth when all history has context and viewpoint. Your topic has been dominated by historians writing in sympathy with the Confederate South. He said, I look forward to commentary from someone who is raised in that historical perspective, who has had the personal and intellectual courage to step beyond it. Now, that is definitely too high praise for me, but he nailed the rest of it. I did grow up learning the history of the lost cause as being the history of the South. I just want to put that out there because since the beginning of doing the podcast, like I've said, I've tried to do my best at keeping as close to the facts as possible with as little personal bias as possible, but it's ultimately impossible because everyone, as I said, is a filter of their life experiences and personal understanding and knowledge and education. And because I have made a public stand on the issue, I believe it only fair that I made it evident. Now that that's out of the way, let's get on with the history of Confederate monuments and the debate over their removal. First, let's look at the uses and nature of history again, as we briefly did at the very beginning of Texas History Lessons in the very first episode. Number one, history is a good source of personal and social identity. This seems to be a big part of the controversy regarding the statues. Some people believe that moving a statue representing a Confederate soldier that fought for a secessionist nation, largely founded with the mission of protecting their state's rights to own other human beings, is an assault on their identity. On the other hand, a person of color seeing a statue on a courthouse lawn is reminded that their personal and social identity is not represented at all by that statue. No matter how much people that are on the other side try to argue that it represents black soldiers. It's just not. It's really not true. It's not representative of their identity. I've heard so many people explain to me that it's not. Aside from that, the soldiers it celebrates fought to keep their ancestors in bondage. That's what it, it stands for. I want to share a quote from another person that has listened to the show that shared some thoughts with me. I asked him if he minded if I shared this and he said, go for it. He had no problem with it. He's not, he's not afraid of having his voice heard. He said that he thinks the reason people get so touchy about it is because they don't want to consider their ancestors as being the bad guys. Now, when he does a podcast, and when he said, when I did my podcast on Bigfoot Wallace, I mentioned that he would hunt down escaped slaves. 
Someone messaged me saying that the reason Bigfoot went after escaped slaves is because he was a good man. Had someone else gone after the slaves, they may have harmed or mistreated them, but not Bigfoot. Why does this person think that? Josh wrote, there's nothing in Bigfoot's history to back this up. I think people just don't want their heroes to be flawed. All of my great times three or four grandfathers fought for the Confederacy. I'm not ashamed of this fact whatsoever. They were doing what they perceived to be their duty. But that also doesn't mean I'm going to do mental gymnastics trying to justify the Southern cause or personally be divisive and fly the rebel flag. I believe it was an unjust war. I think history is full of injustices. And I want to thank Josh for sharing that and allowing me to share that. Because I agree 100%. I think it does matter. Uh, part of it that people don't want to hear that we've been taught to admire and revere these people and have them as examples. But the fact is, no one is perfect. I myself looked into the Confederate soldier roles and found that just in each branch of my family, I mean, in one in particular, my father's family had up to anywhere 15, 16 people fought for the Confederate Army. There were about three or four that fought on the Union side. And there were four that served in the United States Army Colored Infantry. Now, that's a weight in itself, because what does that mean? And I don't know enough. Does that mean that there were slaves in my family history? Am I supposed to be proud of that? I can respect my ancestors. And I can acknowledge the fact that they made mistakes. But I don't have to praise them for those mistakes. Number two, history can help us understand the problems we face today. We need to understand an issue's relevant historical background in order to make balanced and informed decisions. Number three, an understanding of history is useful against other people's misleading uses of historical explanations or analogies to prove a point. I've heard people say that the statues were actually put up as conciliatory gestures with the North. I've heard people say that they are facing North because in the future the soldiers would be ready to assist the United States in conflicts of the future. I've heard people say that the statues were built to honor Confederate veterans that served in the Spanish-American War. A close look at the history of the statues history and when they were erected and why it pretty much dismisses most if not all of these arguments and there's also the narrative of the lost cause understanding history reading farther out of than what you've been given in the past finding the actual true historic documents reading the actual words people said pretty much dismisses 
false narratives that people create to justify something. History can help create tolerance, open-mindedness, and tolerance. That's number four. This is definitely an important point to keep in mind when looking at, at a sensitive issue like this one. No matter what side you stand on, it is important to listen and try to understand the counter-argument or else there is no dialogue. It's just people yelling at each other at that point. Number five, history improves our ability to understand human behavior and conditions. Number six, history also provides a basic background for other disciplines like political science and sociology. Seven, history can help you learn critical skills like thinking and communicating. <laughs> I had a professor actually say to that to a class I was in once. He laughed at us when we were stammering about what the purpose of his job was. And he said, and this is a loose quotation, he said, I'm not here to help you learn facts. Any adult can look up a fact. I'm here to teach you how to think, to question, weigh the evidence, judge the merit of a source, and much more. And number eight, history is entertaining. And number nine, my favorite thing about history that made me love the study of history when I was young and carried it on through to today. That has largely helped shape my early views on the South and the Confederacy. Is history's adventure, and this is a very personal one for me because when I would read the stories of the gallant chivalrous knights of the Confederacy, not the KKK, I did not get into that subject matter. Thank goodness. But when talking about the generals and the leaders and how they were just so noble and honorable and just men. I got wrapped up into it as a kid. I believed it. And the fact of the matter is very little was mentioned about slavery. And yes, yeah, slavery was part of it, but that's not why they were fighting. I, I learned when I was young and all the while the alternative was actual truth that I wish I had grown up knowing with concrete certainty in my mind. I also want to get into quite quickly, as fast as possible, the four stages of historical consciousness. There's the first stage, history as fact. This is the most basic level. We learn dates and events and names and battles and wars, and that's pretty much that. This is the history that a lot of people remember learning in school. and like, why do I need to know this? I don't see why I have to know all this information. And it drove them away from looking deeper into the stories of the past so that when they just have fa a fact, they can just throw that fact out as an argument without knowing the next three stages. The second stage is history as causal sequence, meaning you start to see the cause and effect relationships between different facts in stage one. This thing influenced this, which influenced this, which influenced this. And then you get to stage three, history as complexity. Human affairs today are very complex. Our daily lives are complex. Everything that happens to us every day is influenced by many things going on at once. Many factors can result in a specific event that happens to you tomorrow. The past was no different. Many multiple causations played a role in the history of our world, nation, and state. This is where the historian's own identity actually shows up. To quote from the methods and skills of history, the basis of much of this section, historians 
tell different stories depending on their interests and points of view. This is important to know, and that is why I made full disclosure at the very beginning. And then there's history as interpretation, fourth stage. By looking at the facts, the causal sequences, the multiple causations that led to the complexity and the role of the historian's interests and points of view, much of history is an effort to interpret the past to make it understandable and relatable and useful for the right uses. There is a lot of ambiguity in the past. There have been lots of efforts like that as the lost cause narrative of the Civil War that literally tried to cover up the history of the South for several generations, including that of my youth. It was a forced interpretation with an agenda. As an aside for a lot more on this subject matter that I've just briefly went through, Check out Connell Fure and Michael Salveris' Methods and Skills of History, and also look at R.J. Schaefer's A Guide to Historical Method. They're pretty um, fundamental books in the practice of learning how to do good history. Now let's move on to the, the lost cause. Former mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landu, hope I'm saying his name right, I'm probably not shares an informative story of how he learned about the reasons the statues in his city were put up. In 2015, he and others were having discussions about whether or not they should stay or go. So he and his staff did research and discovered the truth. They found an application from 1999 that was requesting to have the equestrian statue of General Pierre Gustave Toutant Burgard placed on the National Register of Historic Places. And in the application it includes these words the cult of the lost cause had its roots in the southern search for justification and the need to find a substitute for victory in the civil war i'm going to repeat that the search for justification and the need to find a substitute for victory in the civil war in attempting to deal with defeat Southerners created an image of the war as a great heroic epic. A major theme of the lost cause was the clash of two civilizations, one inferior to the other. The North, invigorated by the constant struggle with nature, had become materialistic, grasping for wealth and power. The South, though, had a more generous climate, which had led to a finer society based upon veracity and honor in man, chastity and fidelity in women. Like tragic heroes, Southerners had waged a noble but doomed struggle to preserve their superior civilization. There was an element of chivalry in the way the South had fought, achieving noteworthiness, victories against staggering odds. This was the lost cause, as the late 19th century saw it, and a whole generation of Southerners set about glorifying and celebrating it. This is the history of the South and the Civil War that I grew up with and that shaped my understanding when I was young. You know, it's time watching Dukes of Hazard and hearing Hank Williams Jr. and Charlie Daniels sing songs praising the South and how the South's going to do it again. And none of that sounded weird in my ears. I didn't understand what insidiousness was actually behind that. But I matured. And I continue to learn. And I continue to question 
until I actually uncovered the truth. The Civil War was fought for states' rights and many other reasons, not to preserve slavery. That's part of the not-lost cause narrative. That is a partial truth. The Civil War was fought for states' rights, but especially for the states' rights to preserve slavery. And without slavery, the bloodshed of hundreds of thousands would probably have been avoided. I looked at it from every possible angle personally over the years. Had slavery not been in the equation... The United States, the bond that held us together, would not have ruptured in 1861. That's my personal takeaway from studying this my entire life. I've heard other arguments, economic issues. It all, to me, comes back. You can bring up any issue. It all comes back to the issue of slavery. Look at the legislation passed in the states during the secession process, the words that they used. And since this is a Texas history podcast, let's look specifically at Texas. And I'm going to apologize in the forefront. I'm going to try to not use some of the language. Any word you hear me use that is offensive, it is a direct quote. And it's not something I'm comfortable saying, but I'm going to use it because it's a quote. And it shows what the mentality of the people in this time period thought. So let's look at uh, let's look at Cook County. When on December fifteenth, eighteen sixty, after Abraham Lincoln won the election, pro secession Cook County citizens declared, "Whereas the Black Republican Party, sectional in its organization, avowedly aggressive and hostile to the institution of slavery and advocates, has grown to its." present gigantic and fearful proportions upon no other than that of deep-seated hatred towards Negro slavery and that people of that section of the Union where it exists. That comes from a Dallas Herald uh, July 9th, 1861 issue where they were sharing that declaration. December 22nd, 1860, in Denton County, immediately south of Cook County, the county I was born in, a mass meeting of Denton County citizens gathered on the courthouse square and issued the following proclamation. It's pretty similar to the one in Cook County. Whereas we, the citizens of Denton County, Texas, in mass meeting assembled, believing the government of the United States, as formed by the Revolutionary Fathers, is a government of white men and it's formed for the mutual benefit, happiness, and protection of white men that the Negro population of the country had and should have no rights, interests, or voice in said government except by, in, and through their connections with the white population as dependents and slaves. That was part of their proclamation supporting secession. This can be found in the January 2nd issue from 1861 of the Dallas Herald. On February 2nd, 1861, the state of Texas adopted a declaration of the causes which impelled the state of Texas to secede from the Federal Union. 
It pointed out that northern states were working against southern states and seeking to create a situation thereby annulling a material provision of the compact designed by its framers to perpetuate amity between the members of the Confederacy and to secure the rights of the slaveholding states and their domestic institutions, a provision founded in justice and wisdom, and without the enforcement of which the compact fails to accomplish the object of its creation. It continues to assert that in the North, the people have formed themselves into a great sectional party, now strong enough in numbers to control the affairs of each of those states, based upon the unnatural feeling of hostility to these southern states and their beneficent and patriarchal system of African slavery, proclaiming the debasing doctrine of the equality of all men. I'm going to repeat that. They are angry at the North for proclaiming the debasing doctrine of the equality of all men, irrespective of race or color, a doctrine at war with nature and opposition to the experience of mankind and in violation of the plainest revelations of the divine law. They demand the abolition of Negro slavery throughout the Confederacy, the recognition of political equality between the white and the Negro races, and avow their determination to press on their crusade against us so long as a Negro slave remains in these states. For years past, this abolition organization has been actively sowing the seeds of discord through the Union and has rendered the Federal Congress the arena for spreading firebrands and hatred between the slaveholding and non-slaveholding states. That's an end quote there. In another section, it says they have for years past encouraged and sustained lawless organizations to steal our slaves and prevent their recapture and have repeatedly murdered Southern citizens while lawfully seeking their rendition. Then it claims they have sent hired emissaries among us to burn our towns and distribute arms and poison to our slaves for the same purpose. They have impoverished the slaveholding states by unequal and partial legislation, thereby enriching themselves by draining our substance. Uh, it's almost unbearable to go through, but... And in nearing its conclusion, the declaration states, we hold as undeniable truths that the governments of the various states and of the Confederacy itself were established exclusively by the white race for themselves and their posterity, that the African race had no agency in their establishment, that they were rightfully held and regarded as inferior and dependent race. They were rightfully held and regarded as an inferior independent race, and in that condition only could their existence in this country be rendered beneficial or tolerable? That in this free government all white men are uh, and of right ought to be entitled to equal civil and political rights? That the servitude of the African race as existing in these states is mutually beneficial to both bond and free? And is abundantly authorized and justified by the experience of mankind and the revealed will of the Almighty Creator as recognized by all Christian nations, while the destruction of the existing relations between the two races as advocated by our sectional enemies would bring inevitable calamities upon both and desolation upon the 15 slaveholding states? 
by the secession of six of the slave-holding states and certainty that others will speedily do likewise. Texas has no alternative but to remain in an isolated connection with the North or unite her destinies with the South. Therein lies the entire lost cause narrative just continued on after the war. Slavery was the central argument. They couldn't get away from it. Furthermore, as if we need more evidence, and I'm just going to keep sharing it because it's it's not hard to find, people. It's just not. Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens famously stated in the Cornerstone speech, a lot of you might have heard of it. If you haven't, you should go read it. Or better yet, here, let me read it for you right now. He, he did this on March 21st, 1861 in Savannah, Georgia. Part of it, he says, our new government, the Confederacy is what he's talking about, is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. The opposite idea he's talking about is that of the North. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery's subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. Uh, this, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. This truth has been slow in the process of its development, like all other truths in the various departments of science. All fanaticism springs from an aberration of the mind, from a defect in reasoning. It is a species of insanity. And he's talking about equality between races. Is a species of insanity to think like that. That's what he's saying here. One of the most striking characteristics of insanity in many instances is forming correct conclusions from fancied or erroneous premises. So with the anti-slavery fanatics, their conclusions are right. If their premises were, they assume that the Negro is equal and hence conclude that he is entitled to equal privileges and rights with a white man. If their premises were correct, Stephen says, their conclusions would be logical and just, but their premise being wrong, their whole argument fails. They were attempting to make things equal which the creator had made unequal. Ugh. With us, all of the white race, however high or low, rich or poor, are equal in the eye of the law. Not so with the Negro. Subordination is his place. He, by nature, or by the curse of Gantz Canaan, is fitted for that condition which he occupies in our system. The architect in the construction of buildings lays the foundation with the proper material, the granite. Then comes the brick or the marble. The substratum of our society is made of the material fitted by nature for it. And experience, we know that it is best, not only for the superior, but also for the inferior race, that it should be so. It is indeed in conformity with the ordinance of the Creator. It is not for us to inquire into the wisdom of His ordinances or to question them. For His own purposes, He has made one race to differ from another, as He has made one star to differ from another star in glory. 
the great objects of humanity are best attained when there is conformity to his laws and decrees in the formation of governments as well as in all things else. Our confederacy is founded upon principles in strict conformity with these laws. This stone, which was rejected by the first builders, is become the chief of the corner, the real cornerstone in our new edifice. That's a lot to take in, and I'm sorry if I'm going to rely heavily on quotes, but you need to hear the words of the actual people. Because these same people are going to come back in a couple of years after they've, they've lost the war and try to shift the narrative, create the narrative of the lost cause. And if you think this is just people back then that hold these beliefs, these beliefs have been sustained to now. People can deny it all they want. I've grew up here in North Texas. In rural North Texas, on farms, going to an all, mostly all-white school, I've heard the way people talk about other races my entire life. I have sat in a church in the 1990s in North Texas and heard a pastor use the curse against Canaan as in reference to black American citizens and the black people as a whole across the, the world. I've sat there and I've heard it myself. These thoughts, these ideas are passed generation to generation. We're, when we look at the people in the past, oh, you can't judge them because they, it was 150 years ago. But when those same ideas are still existing here today, I don't feel like I can't say something against it. I'm sorry. This is turning out to be a lot harder to deal with than I thought it was going to be. Um, I want to end this section on the lost cause with, with a, over the causes of the war with a quote from a book review by a, a very highly respected historian. His name is, he's, he, he was a professor at Princeton. Um, his name is James E. McPherson. He's written some wonderful books, especially about the Civil War. And you can find this quote in the April 12, 2001 issue of the New York Review of Books. And here's what he said. When Abraham Lincoln delivered his second inaugural address on March 4, 1865, at the end of four years of Civil War, few people in either the North or the South would have dissented from his statement that slavery was somehow the cause of the war. At the war's outset in 1861, McPherson continues, Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, had justified secession as an act of self-defense against the incoming Lincoln administration, whose policy of excluding slavery from the territories would make property in slaves so insecure as to be comparatively worthless, thereby annihilating, in effect, property worth thousands of millions of dollars. And therein lies the the truth right there. These are just a few examples of facts. 
the wealth of the South, the wealth of the elite of the South, who somehow convinced poor whites that it was in their best interest to support slavery. Another little known fact that I came across just recently in a book, a couple of books I've read recently. Um, matter of fact, I can't remember the author's name, but How the South Won the Civil War is a new book that just came out that is a pretty remarkable tour of force through the history of the post-Reconstruction era to the present day, to the actual present day, um, that you should check out. And that there was actually poor whites. There was actually a huge segment of white society that was underemployed or unemployed that couldn't find work or didn't have adequate work to support their families. And a large part of that's because of slavery existed. That's a fact. Again, these are just a few examples of facts. Actual words spoken and printed. Actual arguments made by secessionists. What came after was a manipulation of facts and an effort to rewrite the true history before it could barely be written. I could probably go on finding another hundred pages of evidence, but time insists that I move ahead, and honestly, I, I can't deal with much more of it personally. If it's painful for me as a privileged white man to go through these unjust statements, I can't even begin to fathom how it must sound to a person of color. And I apologize for, for these statements. They're not mine. I'm just saying that. Following the war, Southern Ladies Memorial Associations and men's veterans groups began to seek in the late 1860s to vindicate the Confederacy against charges of treason and dishonor. Losing is never easy. People don't like losing. I get it. I guess it's one of the good things in life that and I, I'm playing football in high school and basketball. We pretty much lost every game. So I learned how to lose. I could lose with honor. I could lose knowing that I got beat by the better team, but I just did my best. But I'm not going to try to vindicate it and say that I was stolen from me or that I, I learned that losing, you can lose with your head held high. The South didn't do that. The term lost cause... pretty much comes from Virginia author Edward Pollock's 1866 book, The Lost Cause, a new Southern history of the War of the Confederates. It's funny, in 1866, a new Southern history of the War of the Confederates. This is just one year since the war, but okay. And then let's go back to our friend Alexander Stevens. Remember I just read a massive portion of his Cornerstone speech? He also started, he put out a book immediately after the war called A Constitutional View of the Late War Between the States, Its Causes, Character, Conduct, and Results, presented as a series of colloquies at Liberty Hall, which, in which he vehemently denies and tries to find some other way to blame the North for the war, 
with anything but the issue of slavery. Remember the words I just read from the Cornerstone speech. I've read portions of this book, and he comes out at the outset saying, oh, the war was not fought over slavery. I guess he thought the words he said would not be found and used against him in the past. But thank God that they are there and have been preserved to show the, the, the trend here, the method that they're using. So here we have, we have this, what's happening after the war. People are starting to try to justify the war in other ways. And they're creating this lost cause narrative that we've, we've been talking about. The, the Daughters of Confederacy were founded in 1894, and they picked up the mission of ensuring the centrality of the lost cause in education and in promoting the dedications of statues. Um, they gained control of school curriculums in the South and insisted on the lost cause being in education. I'm going to quote again from the McPherson article that I mentioned before. The lost cause myth helped Southern whites deal with a shattering reality of catastrophic defeat and impoverishment in a war they had been sure they would win. Southerners emerged from the war subdued, but unrepentant. They had lost all save honor, and their unsullied honor became the foundation of their myth, of the myth. Having outfought the enemy, they were eventually ground down by overwhelming numbers and resources, as Robert E. Lee told his grieving soldiers at Appomattox. This theme was echoed down the years in Southern memoirs at reunions of Confederate veterans and by heritage groups like the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Sons of the Confederate Veterans. Genius and valor went down before brute force, declared a Georgia veteran in 1890. The Confederacy had surrendered but was never whipped. Robert Lee was the war's foremost general, indeed the greatest commander in American history. While Ulysses S. Grant was a mere bludgeoner whose army overcame his more skilled and courageous enemy only because of those overwhelming numbers and resources, end quote. Again, the Lost Cause narrative denied the centrality of slavery to secession and even asserted that slavery had been a benevolent institution, which, as a secessionist said, it was benevolent to own the slave. The South did not lose due to poor leadership, poor military performance, or battlefield losses. But because the North had greater resources, the cult praising the greatness and justification and honor of leaders like Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, Thomas Stonewall Jackson, and others arose. I remember reading these books about how great these men were. Robert E. Lee was amazing. Stonewall Jackson was amazing. You did not besmirch their names. They were held in great reverence. It taught that emancipation had been a terrible result of the North winning and that racial equality was a dangerous thing for the South. Black people needed to be marginalized and kept in an inferior role in society for their own good and the good for white society. And the efforts of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan in the 19th century were, they were heroic warriors attempting to redeem the South in the aftermath of losing the military battle for their just and pure society of slaveholders. White supremacist views were doctrine and culturally all across the United States, not just in the South. 
it wasn't just the South after the war that upheld white supremacist views. There was a move throughout the country to promote the image of black Americans as inferior and threatening in every aspect of their nature. You want to check out the veracity of these statements? You read two books. And I encourage you, go find these books and read them. Because hand in hand, they are the history of the post-war South that helped create our present day situation. And definitely up until the 1960 civil rights movement, it created the culture. Number one, go pick up C. Van Woodward's 1955 book, The Strange Career of Jim Crow. It details the legislative and judicial manipulations that were used to keep black Americans subjugated and controlled. And then side by side, and I did this, I read one and then I read this masterful, wonderful book, hard book to go through, but it's necessary and needed the knowledge in this book. It's all fact. Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s 2019 masterpiece, Stony the Road, Reconstruction, White Supremacy, and the Rise of Jim Crow. It details the nationwide cultural messages that were pushed against black Americans and black Americans' efforts to assert their rightful place in society and their, their own dignity. Symbolism like Aunt Jemima was born in this time period. And I'm also, I've had to, this is a, this is a confession. I've had to listen to family members. So upset. How dare they change? Take my aunt Jemima. I guess I won't be eating that anymore because how dare they all due to a lack of understanding the symbolism that was there throughout our history was an effort to keep us from considering each other equals. Yet all I hear from the other side today, on the other side of the, the people counter-protesting at, at things about moving statues, is that we're all equal. Uh, we're fine. There's no, there's no reason for this. The Reconstruction period I learned about was one filled with carpetbaggers and scalawags who sought to destroy what was left of the South's honor, wealth, and dignity. It didn't really highlight the use of black codes and Jim Crow laws to keep black Americans from having a full role in political and economic and social society. No, it didn't do that. And in the end, the South won by playing a waiting game. By the end of Reconstruction, the South found itself in a position to redeem itself and establish societal norms that it so loved. That's where we ended up getting the separate schools, back of the bus, separate water fountains, and much worse, the lynchings, the terrorizing of people. That's where we ended up Tulsa. Massacre coming from early on during reconstruction while federal troops remained stationed in the south newly freed black Americans began to be elected to political office they're starting businesses they're trying to accumulate property while white southerners fumed 
The KKK was born and sought violent justice at night when the federal troops left in the 1870s. White violence continued and black politicians were sometimes violently removed from office. Elections were often rigged. You want to talk about rigged elections, that's, that's what the South did to make sure that blacks lost their vote. Their violence was targeted against black businesses and farms. Whites regained the legislatures and began to establish literacy requirements and property requirements to vote. They set up poll taxes. They set up institutionalized segregation. This was the birth of the Jim Crow era. Again, here's a statement by McPherson. Since the 1950s, most professional historians have come to agree with Lincoln's assertion that slavery was the cause of the Civil War. Outside the universities, however, lost cause denial is still popular, especially among southern heritage groups that insist the confederate flag stands not for slavery but for a legacy of courage and honor in defense of principle but sadly the southern heritage they cling to is largely myth created to prop up the egos of defeated warriors if you need further help in understanding the true heritage of the south and the cause of the civil war and the myth of the lost cause check out these three books gary w gallagher and Alan T. Nolan's The Myth of the Lost Cause in Civil War History. That one in particular is very good. That's where I read part of Alexander Stevens's Lost Cause effort. Uh, pick up Charles B. Dew, his book, Apostles of Disunion, Southern Secession Commissioners and the Causes of the Civil War. And then there is Leonard L. Richards, The Slave Power, The Free North and Southern Dis Domination, 1780-1860. The second book by a gentleman named Charles Dew. That, by the way, was written by a Southerner who, much like myself, was astonished to see that he had been lied to when he matured and grew up and actually started doing real historical research and digging into the documents and records of the secession and Civil War era. And seeing what actual truth was, what the actual facts were. We want to know what facts are. There's not the fake history of the lost cause. The real history of the Civil War and Reconstruction, it's there. And people have uncovered and they're sharing it. During the same time period where the lost cause narrative is being preached and Jim Crow is being started. There there were there were two distinct periods in which there were significant increases in dedications of monuments. The first was from around 1900 to the 1920s. That's when the ones in Gainesville were erected. The second was during the civil rights movements of the 1950s and the 1960s. Both were at the time of the 50th and 100th anniversary of the war and at times and both were at times when African-Americans were seeking justice. So, Confederate statues on courthouse lawns and Confederate generals' names on schools. That was the result of these two time periods. To quote a report from the Southern Poverty Law Center, it's also beyond question that the Confederate flag was used extensively by the KKK as it waged a campaign of terror against African-Americans during the Civil Rights Movement and that segregationists in power, positions of power raised it in defense of Jim Crow, George Wallace, Alabama's governor, unfurled a flag above the state capitol in 1963, shortly after vowing segregation forever. In many other cases, schools, parks, and streets were named for Confederate icons during the 
era of white resistance to equality. And funny coincidence, I've seen pictures from events I've been at where the opposition's waving their Confederate flags. And I've sat them exactly next to pictures from the 1960s where they've got Confederate flags. And it's almost impossible to see a difference. These time periods, and that quote coincide with the times that most of the statues were erected. I want to share a little quote from Stanford, Sanford Levinson, American legal scholar, best known for his writings on constitutional law and as a professor at the University of Texas Law School, and a book, Written in Stone, Public Monuments in Changing Societies, came out in 1998 originally, I believe. He wrote, those with political power within a given society organize public space to convey and thus to teach the public desired political lessons. What would the lesson of a Confederate statue being erected in the early 1900s or during the Civil Rights Movement, what is that political lesson being taught? That's a question that you can answer yourself if it's not already been made apparent. Again, from the Southern Poverty Law Center report. There are more than 1,700 symbols of Confederacy in public spaces, including monuments, statues, flags, holidays, and other observances, and the names of schools, highways, parks, bridges, counties, cities, lakes, dams, roads, military bases, and other public works. There are about 103 public K-12 schools and three colleges named after prominent Confederates. At least 34 of these schools and colleges were built or dedicated from 1950 to 1970, probably encompassing the era of the modern civil rights movement. This is where I'm saying we need you have to go through those stages of historical understanding and consciousness linking together. There are reasons things happen. These multiple causations and, it, and it's, it's like you're, you're a historical detective tying together, like Sherlock Holmes, these pieces. And it's not that hard. You just have to forget everything you thought you knew and just look at it as what it is, the reality of it. To continue, there are nearly 800 Confederate monuments and statues on public property throughout the country, the vast majority in the south. Of these, 780 were monuments at county courthouses town squares, state capitals, and other public venues. Most 604 were dedicated before 1950. 28 were dedicated from 1950 and 1970, and 34 were dedicated after 2000. Most are inscribed with colorful language exalting their heroism and valor, or sometimes the details of particular battles or local units, and others like the one in uh, Gainesville on the courthouse square, go further to glorify the Confederacy's cause. We will eventually get to the Gainesville statue in Cook County. But there's something to be shared now about it. On the courthouse lawn in Gainesville, there's a statue commemorating the soldiers and sailors of the Confederacy. The final panel facing the courthouse is a quote from a longer inscription that can be found on the Augusta, Georgia Confederate Monument. 
Now, the South has started honoring the Confederacy with statues almost immediately after the Civil War, but not at the rate that would happen after 1900 when states were enacting more and more Jim Crow laws. Uh, the wife of a Confederate soldier created the first Confederate Memorial Day in 1866, the very same year that Jefferson Davis laid the cornerstone at the Confederate Memorial Monument State Capitol Grounds in Montgomery, Alabama. And, of course, the monument was on a very prominent spot on those Capitol Grounds. Now, onto the Augusta Monument and its ties to Gainesville and many other statues. The Augusta Monument was dedicated and unveiled on October 31st, 1878. This is when Reconstruction was coming to an end and the South was redeeming itself. They're, they were coming back with a vengeance to reestablish their society the way it's supposed to be. And I look at the timeline of the dedications of Confederate statues, and this was a fairly early one and a very significant one. General Clement A. Evans, born 1833, died in 1911, spoke at the monument's dedication. This is the first recorded appearance of the man that became known as the Reverend General, who would be speaking at monument dedications in Georgia for the next 30 years. He was also a uh, founder of the first National Confederate Veterans Group, the United Confederate Veterans, in 1889, and a commander of the uh, United Confederate Veterans Georgia Division for 12 years. He is quoted as being having said, If we cannot justify the South in the act of secession, we will go down in history solely as a brave, impulsive, but rash people who attempted in an illegal manner to overthrow the union of our country. If we cannot justify the South in the act of secession, meaning he saw it as a necessity, because he also saw that what they had done, in his words, was nothing more than a brave, impulsive, but rash attempt and an illegal attempt to overthrow the union of our country. Again, Alexander Stevens, the former Vice President of the Confederate States of America, he was also in town, but illness prevented him from being present at the actual dedication. Monument was designed by a guy named Von Gunden of Philadelphia and carved by the Italian sculptor Antonio Fontana in Carrera, Italy. The tallest of Confederate memorials at 76 feet. It has statues at a lower level of General William Henry Talbot Walker, representing Augusta. General Robert Edward Lee, representing the Confederacy. General Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson, representing Virginia. And General Thomas Reed Roots Cobb, representing Georgia. Walker was a slave owner. He owned 14 slaves in Richmond in 1860. His mother owned about 26. Lee was also a slave owner. This is something you don't hear a lot when you read about some of the books I read growing up and his letters tell us much about his racial attitudes he disliked the bondsmen's presence and generally avoided dealing with them telling his wife do not trouble yourself about them as they are not worth it Lee complained continually about his slaves habits and wrote it would be accidental to fall in with a good one annoyed with having to provide for his slaves he frequently rented them out one of his slaves called him the meanest man I ever saw. Another said he was a hard taskmaster, and yet another asserted he tried to keep us slaves when we 
was as free as he. This goes to um, something that we'll get to in a minute. As late as 1865, he was still asserting that the relations of master and slave is the best that can exist between the white and black races. He had equally dismissive views of other groups who threatened white aspirations, including Mexicans and American Indians, whom he several times described as hideous and whom he believed to be culturally inferior. It is important to note that these are not random comments written on a bad day, but a constant pattern in Lee's writing. Stonewall Jackson also owned slaves. Historian James Robertson says of Jackson, Jackson neither apologized for nor spoke in favor for the practice of slavery. He probably opposed the institution. Yet in his mind, the creator had sanctioned slavery and man had no moral right to challenge his existence. The good Christian slaveholder was one who treated his servants fairly and humanely at all times. That's the quote from Robertson. Cobb was also a slave owner and ardent secessionist. He wrote a treatise on the law of slavery entitled An Inquiry into the Law of Negro Slavery in the United States of America. And a passage in it reads, it's published in 1858, and a passage reads, This inquiry into the physical, mental, and moral development of the Negro race seems to point them clearly as particularly fitted for a laborious class. The physical frame is capable of great and long continued exertion their mental capacity renders them incapable of successful development and yet adapts them for the direction of the wiser race their moral character renders them happy peaceful contented and cheerful in a status that would break the spirit and destroy the energies of the caucasian or the native american and that's who's got a statue who was on a statue in uh, augusta Paul Finkelman, in the book Thomas R. R. Cobb and the Law of Negro Slavery, wrote, Pro-slavery advocates such as Cobb emphatically insisted on the justice and morality, the essential rightness of slavery. Cobb believed that racially-based slavery was a prerequisite of a truly Republican equality because only in such a system were all whites equal in status regardless of their wealth, property, or station in life. Thus, according to Cobb, racially-based slavery allowed all white citizens of the nation to imbibe freedom from their mother's milk. Under Cobb's view of the world, slavery was not an evil, but a positive good that preserved American liberty and without slavery, freedom in America would be threatened. Um, and then at the very top of is a Confederate statue in the image of Sergeant Barry Benson. He lived from 1843 to 1923. He was a sharpshooter and a scout who posed for the figure. Benson famously did not lay down arms at Appomattox. Instead, deciding to be unrepentant and walk home, his unsurrendered musket has been available for viewing in Augusta Richmond County Museum. Benson was active in Augusta business and politics and the United Confederate Veterans. He died in 1923. Should we just think it a coincidence that the image bears the likeness of an unrepentant soldier in an inscription that bears the unrepentant lines of in memoriam? No nation rose so white and fair. None fell so pure of crime. That's the quote that's on the one of the panels on the Gainesville courthouse lawn on its north face and the following is on the south face worthy to have lived 
and known our gratitude worthy to be hallowed and held in tender remembrance worthy the fadeless fame which confederate soldiers won who gave themselves life and death for us for the honor of georgia for the rights of states for the liberties of the people for the sentiments of the south for the principles of the union as these were handed down to them by the fathers of our common country the words no nation rose so wide and fair none fell so pure of crime are the words of british poet philip stanhope worsley a british poet who lived from 1835 to 1866 in a short verse he dedicated to general robert e lee many sources assert that these words that are on the gainesville one that are on the augusta one are the most commonly etched words on Confederate monuments. Worsley published a translation of the Odyssey in 1861, a translation and a translation of the first 12 books of the Iliad in 1865. Now, Worsley was a friend of General Lee's nephew, Edward Lee Child, and sent Lee his Iliad with a dedication to the general. On the flyleaf, Worsley wrote the following to General Lee, the most stainless of living commanders, and except in fortune the greatest. This volume is presented with the writer's earnest sympathy and respectful admiration. Then there's in Greek a quotation from the Iliad, and just beneath, by the same hand, the following verses, the grand old bard that never dies, receive him in our English tongue. I send thee, but with weeping eyes, a story that he sung. Thy Troy is fallen, thy dear land is marred beneath the spoiler's heel. I cannot trust my humbling hand to write the things I feel. All realm of tears, but let her bear the, this blazon to the end of time. No nation rose so white and fair, none fell so pure of crime. The widows moan, the orphans wail. Come round thee, but in truth be strong. Eternal right, though all else fail, can never be made wrong. An angel's heart, an angel's mouth, not Homer's, could alone for me. Him well, the great Confederate South, Virginia first, and Lee. Then signed PSW. I, uh, I've heard people say, try to say that that's just about a flower. If you understand anything about poetic metaphor, and if you just listen to that and go find it, you can find it on the internet yourself. He's praising the South, the justification of the South, the rightness of the South, the Southern cause is just and pure. There, it's, 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 it's the mental gymnastics people do t in order to justify things kind of surprises. It actually surprises me whether than just admit what it is because it is what it is. Now, if you remember, there's a statue to go on there's a statue that was torn down in 2018 august 20th actually torn down uh known as silent sam it did not bear the inscription but the speech given at its dedication um shines light on the prejudices and beliefs of those gathered to celebrate the statues when they were being put up it was put up about the same time that the ones in gainesville texas were put up it was dedicated uh, on June 1913 on the grounds of the University of North Carolina like I said only two years after the statue on the courthouse square in Gainesville Julian Shakespeare Carr who lived 1845-1924 spoke with relish and he quoted Worsley's flyleaf poem to General Lee Carr was a successful 
businessman who publicly endorsed the KKK and supported the idea that African Americans should not be allowed to vote publicly supported this. He also promoted racial unrest and turmoil in the late 19th century to defeat an interracial fusion between political parties. Carr celebrated the Wilmington Massacre of 1998 in which an elected government was overly was overthrown by force. At least 60 black North Carolinians were murdered during this overthrow. He also repeated again and again in speeches that African Americans were better off enslaved and celebrated violence, even lynching against black citizens. In his speech, he celebrates how the soldiers that fought for four years in the Civil War continued to fight during the Reconstruction era for the survival of the Anglo-Saxon race when the bottom rail was on top. He then bragged, and I am censoring this because I'm not going to use the words he said. He then bragged about having, quote, horse whipped a black woman within a hundred yards of the statue until her skirts hung in shreds because she had been insolent and insulting to a, quote, southern lady during the years of Reconstruction. Now, this is in the context of when the statue's in places like Gainesville and all over the place were being put up. This is the rhetoric. This is the, the longing looking back at. This is what people praised. These are facts. You cannot disprove that these were things that were said at the, do, the monuments. Dedications. Let's go on. At the third annual North Carolina division of the Daughters of the Confederacy Convention in 1899, Lucy Claus Parker, president of the Vance County chapter, declared, The old Confederate soldier looks down from the sky and laughs. Laughs. The old Confederate soldier looks down from the sky and laughs as he sees the principles he fought for established. The great battle for a constitution states rights, white supremacy, all the South has conquered. The old Confederate soldier looks down from the sky and laughs as he sees the principles for he fought, established the great battle for the Constitution, states rights, white supremacy, all the South has conquered. This is in 1899. This is the context. This is the worldview. This is the outlook of the Southern people. From the beginning of the redemption period, after the Reconstruction, on into the 1910s, the 1920s, 1930s. This is why the statues were put up. It's a celebration. Not my words, theirs. Their words show it's a, the statues were celebrations. The Confederate soldiers laughing because the South conquered after all, after being defeated against miserable odds, unfairly beaten. They still conquered because they were resilient. Oh my gosh. Such declarations of white supremacy were common at Daughters of the Confederacy events. At their 1901 National Convention, the UDC adopted a motto that pledged to educate the descendants of Southern 
men who wore the gray and thereby fastened more securely the rights and privileges of citizenship upon a pure Anglo-Saxon race. In the 1913 convention, they endorsed and pledged to get a book by Mrs. S.E.F. Ross that was completely focused on praising the KKK, placed in schools as a supplementary reader. In 1916, in Dallas, Texas, Mildred Lewis Rutherford, the historian general of the National UDC, stated that the South was educating black Americans, not the word she used, educating black Americans in the best way they needed, to quote, that education that fitted him for the workshop, the field, the church, the kitchen, the nursery, the home, or to say it just what it means, to keep the black American in their place is what the, the, the UDC wanted. The people that were promoting the, putting the statues up. It was an education that taught black, Amer- black Americans self-control, obedience, and perseverance. Still quoting, yes, taught him to realize his weaknesses and how to grow stronger for the battle of life. The institution of slavery, she argued, was to elevate the slave above his nature and his race. Rutherford was one of the Daughters of Confederacy's most influential leaders for years and years and years. Speaking in San Francisco in 1915, Rutherford stated that the North said the Freedmen's Bureau was necessary to protect the Negro. The South said the KKK, or she said Ku Klux Klan, was necessary to protect the white woman. This, she said, after already stating in 1912 of the Daughters of the Confederacy Convention in New Orleans, the Ku Klux Klan was an absolute necessity in the South at this time, meaning Reconstruction. This order was not composed of riffraff, as has been presented in history, but of the very flower of Southern manhood. The chivalry of the South demanded protection for the women and children of the South. This, again, continues the narrative, put out during the culture through all kinds of media, books, movies, plays, songs, minstrel shows, that you could not trust a black man. That is the cultural message that's been ingrained in the South since before and after the Civil War. And that's what we're fighting against now. In 1926, the Daughters of the Confederacy put up a monument in Cabarrus County outside of Concord, North Carolina in commemoration of the Ku Klux Klan during the Reconstruction period following the war between the states. They put up a statue to the KKK in 1926. The UDC had an enormous role in the 20th century by making sure school curriculums and courthouse lawns preached a similar message. According to the Washington Post, the group has been responsible for erecting more than 700 monuments and other memorials for the Confederacy across the South, exceeding the efforts of any other group. Following the Charlottesville riots of 2017, the modern United Daughters of the Confederacy stated that they reject racism and white supremacist groups adding, we are saddened that some people find anything connected with the Confederacy to be offensive. Our Confederate ancestors were and are Americans. We as an organization do not sit in judgment of them, nor do we impose the standards of the 21st century 
<laughs> on those Americans of the 19th century. Okay, that's their statement now. Now, two of those monuments, as I've been leading up to, are in Gainesville, Texas, the county seat of Cook County, Texas, county with some very serious wounds from the Civil War. And yeah, this is a um, pretty, pretty long episode, longest I've ever done. So I think it's a, it's a good point to take a break. If you're still listening to this, thank you. I've got a lot more. We're about halfway through. Maybe a little bit more than half. And uh, take a ba- break and thank Age of Radio for hosting Texas History Lessons. And I appreciate them. And we'll be right back. Now let's turn our attention to Cook County, Texas. The area that would become Cook County, Texas started getting settled in the 1840s. Wise County, Monte County, Clay County, and Wichita were all originally part of Cook County. The southern and eastern parts were mostly settled by people from Tennessee, Arkansas, and Missouri, and the western parts pretty much remained unsettled or scarcely settled for several years. In 1850, Mary E. Clark donated a 40-acre tract and established the community of Liberty. Since there was already a Liberty, Texas Colonel William Fitzhugh suggested the name be changed to honor General Edmund Pendleton Gaines, and the name Gainesville was born. By 1851, it had a post office and became a stop on the Butterfield Overland Mail Route in September 1858. This brought many people from the Upper South and Midwest. By 1860, the county had a population of 3,760, of which fewer than 10% owned slaves, and they were increasingly fearful of a perceived threat from Kansas abolitionists. The number of slaves themselves numbered 369, just under 11% of the population. Several slaves and a Northern Methodist minister were lynched in North Texas in 1860 amidst this time of fear and unrest during the election of Abraham Lincoln. Following Lincoln's election in 1860, the fire of secession burned across the South. Governor Sam Houston opposed secession and Texans replaced their general that had won their independence from Mexico replaced him from the position of governor out on the frontier in the counties of the frontier few owned slaves Jack and Collin counties overwhelmingly voted against secession over half the voters in Montague, Wise, Cook and Grayson counties voted against secession and Cook County is over 60% voting against secession despite that It was the Confederate sympathizers and slave owners that gained control over issues in the county. Cook County and other counties on the frontier became areas where Confederate deserters and those that just absolutely refused to leave would co-live out, find refuge together, living out in remote areas. 
And then after the conscription acts of 1862, 30 men signed a petition in Cook County protesting the exemption of large slaveholders and sent it to the Confederate Congress. Their leader was exiled by the commander of the Texas Military District containing Cook County. Those that remained formed the nucleus for a Union League in Cook County and local areas. In September 1862, Brigadier General William Hudson, commander of the military district around Gainesville, ordered the arrest of all able-bodied men who did not report for duty. In October 1862, troops led by Colonel James G. Borland arrested over 150 men. He and William Young supervised the establishment of a citizen's court of 12 jurors. Borland and Young owned uh, nearly a quarter of the slaves in Cook County, and seven of the jurors were slaveholders. The prisoners were accused of insurrection or treason. Apparently, none of them owned slaves. Not surprising. Seven men were condemned by the jury initially, then an angry mob lynched 14 more before the jurors recessed. The next week, an unknown assailant killed Young and a Mr. James Dixon, 19 more men were convicted and hanged. This is known as the Great Hanging. 40 men were executed by hanging. Two others were shot. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from one of the descendants of one of the men that shot one of the prisoners. We'll actually get to hear what he thinks about the Great Hanging, as well as the statue on the square. He's a Confederate descendant just like most people in the South are, and he's a native of Gainesville, Texas. The event actually embarrassed Jefferson Davis, and he dismissed the military commander of Texas for his improper use of martial law in several instances, including the hangings. After the war, there was a half-hearted attempt at prosecuting those responsible for the Great Hanging. I'm going to do an episode in the future on the Great Hanging in greater detail, it's a fascinating, sad, infuriating part of our past. Cook County and Gainesville grew after the war, and Gainesville incorporated in 1873. The arrival of railroads in the 1870s and 1880s brought prosperity. In 1908, the Daughters of the Confederacy dedicated a monument in Leonard Park, the white only park with a statue of a Confederate soldier, rifle in his left hand and right fist in the air. It's in badly bad condition now. Fingers are broken off of the hand in the air and the rifle is missing. It bears the words, our heroes. It was made by Frank Teich, a famed sculptor and stonecutter who worked on several projects across the state of Texas. A few years later, 1911, the city of Gainesville dedicated another Confederate monument on the courthouse grounds. This one is the Confederate Soldiers and Sailors Monument that stands on the northeast corner of Cook County Courthouse, 101 South Dixon Street, if you want to pay it a visit or otherwise. I believe the current but new courthouse was still under construction, so they actually put the, the statue up before the, the courthouse was finished. Two of the panels, again, bear these words. God holds the scales of justice. He will measure praise and blame. And the South will stand the verdict and will stand it without shame. O home of tears, but let her bear this blazon to the end of time. 
No nation rose so wide and fair, none fell so free of crime. It's also interesting that the Gainesville Housing Authority found it necessary to address the presence of the statues on its own website. In part, it says the following. The presence of these monuments praising the Confederacy is ironic, given that Gainesville was the site of a notorious massacre of Texans by Confederate forces. Quote again, Gainesville's own website says the Great Hanging was a notorious massacre of Texans by Confederate forces. The Confederacy had promised that, that Texans would not be drafted to fight the United States outside Texas. When it broke this promise, Confederate officials feared that Cook County, known to be loyal to the United States, would be the site of protest and would possibly secede back to America as several counties in Tennessee already had. It should be noted that when Texans voted on secession, Cook County's residents voted against the act. We've covered that. It's also worthy of bringing up that Cook County delayed integration of schools by several years despite the order to integrate. And I, I I think this is a good point to let someone else take over the discussion for a few minutes. Who better than a person that has family ties to both the Great Hanging and the Courthouse Confederate statue? His name is Asher Underwood. He is a descendant of members of early settlers of Gainesville. He recorded this, by the way, on the 109th anniversary of the statue's commissioning. So I'm just going to let him carry this load for me because he pretty much nails everything I can say about the Gainesville issue of the Great Hanging and the statues. Listen closely to his words. He takes the topic very seriously, especially, I believe, because of the weight of a family connection to both the statue and the Great Hanging. So here's Mr. Asher Underwood and his thoughts on the statue in Gainesville, Texas. Hey, what's good, everybody? It's uh, Asher Underwood here, and uh, I'm in front of the Confederate Sailor and Soldiers Monument outside of Cook County Courthouse in Gainesville, Texas my hometown, home of my ancestors since 1853 is when my great-great-great-grandfather and my great-great-great-grandmother came to Gainesville when it was known as Liberty, Texas, uh, before it was Gainesville. And so my ancestors have been here for uh, quite a long time. My great-great-great-grandfather, who was active in the Great Hanging in Gainesville, Texas, he shot a man dead in the proceedings of the Great Hanging with a shotgun. Use that same shotgun to go fight for the Confederacy under General Fitzhugh's regiment. He also is a a Texas foot rifle. Um, You could say I'm a son of the Confederacy as well as the Aztec Club. He fought in the Mexican-American War, marched 200 miles to, you know, fight, and then fought all along this area. So my great-great-great-grandfather, his nephew, uh, William Howard Jr., his brother, commission for this statue to be put up 109 years ago in 1911 that's on my mother's side so i just i feel like i have a a conversation to bring around this monument that not everybody has heard or considered this perspective so the man that commissioned this his father literally left 300 orphans and 40 widows in cook county okay so 
your spouse, save the children and all that, understand that these people left orphans in this county, hung them in a lynch mob, not just treason against the Confederacy, but the impetus of that treason was based on the petition of the Confederate Conscription Act, which exempted slave owners. So the Peace Party in Gainesville organized around uh, um, protesting the Confederate draft because it exempted slave owners. And less than 10% of the county at that time was slave owners, but they were the ones that were active and involved in the proceedings of the Great Hanging. And so I think it's important to recognize that to say that this monument is not racist, go read the articles of the Confederacy in relation to slavery and maintaining the peculiar institution of slavery, okay? You can't say that the Confederacy was not about maintaining slavery. Even if you want to call it a states versus federal rights argument, it's still a states versus federal rights argument over slavery, right? Human trafficking of people. At the time when, you know, go look at Lloyd Garrison's comments or go look at Mexico at the time when you already had a president before the Civil War in in Mexico that was African, indigenous, and Spanish uh, ancestry. That was unheard of here, in, particularly in North Texas. This was erected during the era of Jim Crow, and it represents an era of slavery. And even to this day, there is not a, a true representation of the minority voices that never even got to vote on the idea of erecting and putting this thing up. So that's really important to understand. The other thing to understand is nobody's talking about destroying history. Despite what anyone has said, there's a great opportunity for people to come together on opposing sides of this issue find a middle ground. This is a nonpartisan issue. This is not a partisan political issue. That this monument represents a bygone era. It should represent all people and that's what the 14th Amendment was, equal protection and justice under the law and the enforcement of the law equally. And that's all that really people want to see and have and feel like there is a fair voice and not a bias in the law enforcement and in the institutions. But I really appreciate you taking the time to hear me out. This is Asher Underwood signing off. I want to thank Asher for sharing that. It's very, very powerful words he, he shared that, to share that, knowing that he had a family member that had murdered somebody in the past and that had a family member that stood proudly up and helped uh, commission the, or call for the put, erection of the, the statue on the county. I want to thank him for doing that. Um, I could go into a lot of greater detail about the people. I have a lot more research I've done on people that were involved. The other gentlemen, one of the reasons it's called the Soldiers and Sailors or Sailors and Soldiers Monument is because one of the men was that he mentioned was actually had been a part of the Confederate Navy. He originally been part of the United States Navy and then, of course, broke his oath to the Constitution in the United States and sided with the, took an oath to join the Confederacy and served in some several, he's all over uh, during the Civil War and served in a lot of different uh, major events in the South in the Civil War. Somehow he ended up in Gainesville, Texas, along with Mr. Howarth, and they were the two that called for the statue to be put up in 1911. I will add, just a little about 12 years later, on July 14th, 
1923. And this is just to set the context of what people were thinking about when they put these statues up. Why they put them up. If I haven't pounded it over enough with facts, the Gainesville KKK proudly held a massive event in, in Gainesville. Eighteen to 20,000 people are believed to have attended. It was an event where the ladies and knights of the KKK held their first joint march. It stretched over a mile long. And Gainesville had only a population of just over 8,600. And the entire Cook County was just over 25,000. The numbers speak for themselves about the context in which the statues were erected. I was going to go into greater detail about the, the Daughters of Confederacy in Texas itself. I was going to go into greater detail about the clan in Texas. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to save that for later episodes. I think I've, I've, I've gone through it enough of these to, to set the context. If need be, I will come back and, and go in greater detail. I will say that in, from the early 1900s to the 1920s, the clan had a resurgence all across the United States. And in Texas had control of pretty much every major city apparently had control of a town like Gainesville. They even controlled the state legislature for most part until actions were taken to lessen their power and grip. But the thing is, even if the KKK isn't, and it was become apparent to me, even if they're not publicly on view, the people that support them and that were members of the KKK, they don't necessarily just automatically switch over and renounce their views. As I've shown in my personal life, I've been told things that were taught in the 1800s while I was growing up. They just shift their attitude a little bit but they're still proud to come out with their Confederate flags at different events. <sighs> okay, let's draw it. Let's get to the close of this episode. I'm apologize for it being so long, but I didn't want to break it up into multiple episodes. And if you've stuck with it this far, I, I appreciate it. And I thank you. I apologize for any mistakes I've made. I apologize for not covering everything you thought I should have included, uh, whether for either side. So following the death of George Floyd in Gainesville, Texas, a group of a small group of citizens began holding daily protests, silent protests at the courthouse statue. The very first protest that pro Gainesville held was, I believe on June 13th, 2020, and they were always faced with opposition. Opponents always were, somebody was always there that challenged their beliefs. Their mission statement says, we are Gainesville citizens advocating for equality in the face of systemic racism who embraces all cultures and walks of life and encouraging increased involvement in our community with the goals of removing the Confederate statues at the Gainesville Courthouse and Leonard Park, changing the name of Robert E. Lee Intermediate and electing more diverse council members to effectively represent the, their community. In July, they announced that the protests were no longer going to be silent. They had voices and they wanted to use them. 
On July 1st, pro-Gainesville and supporters showed up to protest. They were met with possibly a hundred men, white men with guns who were there to stand in opposition to them. My wife and I were there. I counted, I counted personally at least 60 to 70 near the end of the night while they were standing on the other side and they're mostly red shirts or camo and body armor with their AR-15s and flags. And apparently it turns out they were part of a group called the Oath Keeper Organization. Have fun researching them. Um, and I find it interesting that the oath they're saying they're keeping is to the Constitution and they're willing to come out to counter-protest people that are protesting against a statue of somebody that broke their oath to the Constitution of the United States. I'm sure they could, they'll spin it the other way and that's, that's fine, that's their right. That's just how I, I think it's just odd. My wife and I went there that night to support Broke Gainesville for the first time because a lot of the armed counter-protesters that showed up were, are from where I actually live, the area I live in, just west of, west of Gainesville, they came from. Um, uh, we, of course, went unarmed because it wasn't, always has been as peaceful protest. As reported in the Dallas Observer, about 50 demonstrators gathered on the city's square to denounce racial injustice. Tori Lynn Henderson, one of the Progansville founders, said, but they were significantly outnumbered by counter-protesters, many of whom openly carried firearms. As soon as the armed counter-protesters appeared, some of the Progansville supporters fled. Henderson added, that is just complete intimidation and white supremacy, she said. Many of us know what about what happened on July 1st. At the time of this recording, Gainesville City Council had rec- agreed to move the Leonard Park statue. And Gainesville ISD was working towards choosing a name to replace Robert E. Lee's on the intermediate school. The city of Gainesville held their vote to move the statue in the park on July, in July 2020, following the June decisions of other local cities of Dallas, Fort Worth, and Denton to do the same in the wake of Black Lives Matter protests. During the special meeting called to vote on the issue, Gainesville Mayor Jim Goldsworthy stated... If one kid that plays in the playground that we built as a community that reads that and sees that it says that the Confederates are heroes, that's a hard stop for me. I believe they voted unanimously to have it moved. We're still waiting to see it happen, but they say it's going to. The Cook County Court Commissioners, who oversee the county property of the courthouse and its lawn in the heart of the city, have not been cooperative. In a July interview, County Judge Jason Brinkley said the commissioners would consider the community's comments. Then, after a meeting at which members of the community made statements, pro and con, and I actually listened to this meeting, there were a lot of people that weren't part of Pro Gainesville spoke 
in favor of moving the statue eloquently, made profound cases, really solid cases, based on facts and history. And then a lot of the people against it, some of them actually were even threatening that if you don't leave it up there, you're probably just going to lose your position as a commissioner. I've heard actually one person, I think, made that threat. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I heard that. So, after the meeting at which people made statements, the commissioners just chose to do nothing. They were just going to leave it there. Bending to the wills of the majority white constituents in the county, they just chose to do nothing. By the way, Gainesville promotes itself as the most patriotic small town in America, and they hold events to honor Medal of Honor recipients each year. Yet, the county would prefer to embrace a Confederate symbol stained with generations of white supremacy, treason, and hate against instead of patriotism. And again, I I love Cook County, I love Gainesville, I love North Texas, but the, 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 the past is the past, and, you know, if you have arguments as to why you think it should stay up, then that's perfectly fine. I'm not going to yell at you or hate you or be mad at you if you, if you want to disagree. Um, when he spoke at the grand opening of the National Museum of African American History and Culture on September 24th, 2016, President George W. Bush shared the following words. He said, A great nation does not hide its history. It faces its flaws and corrects them. For me, those are very true words, sentiments that I inherently apply to the creation of this podcast before I ever read those words. There are many different ideas regarding the issue of the statues, and I respectfully consider all of them if they are shared with civility and thought. I've already pretty blatantly shared my opinion. What do others say? Let's take a look at some letters to the editor of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram that came out recently this year. Um, this person, I don't know if I should say their name. I won't. Uh, Before we start condemning every park, street, monument, or public building named after a member of the Confederacy, it might be useful to review the entire record of that individual. Fair point. For instance, Jefferson Davis, not the best person to choose as a beginning point, but served with distinction in the war with Mexico, helped preserve Texas independence. As the Secretary of War, Davis was responsible for sending Robert E. Lee to defend against Mexican depredations near Brownsville, and help establish the United States Cavalry Corps to defend Texas against Comanche, Apache, and Kiowa raids. And then I'm not going to even read the next line because it's complete twisting of fact. I'm sorry. Uh, this Another person wrote, We can't erase the past. In my opinion, removing historical monuments only removes history facts. If we eliminate historical monuments, what is next? History books that mention Confederate soldiers? All facts about how Africans were brought into this country unwilling? No mention of how our country was developed? The book Tom Sawyer is banned? Then the Confederate flag, now all statues of Confederacy? Why don't we just say that slavery didn't exist? It's all a fallacy? We're doing an injustice to our country's history... What we all should do is make sure it doesn't happen again and move forward. I agree with 
let's not make sure it doesn't happen again and move forward, but taking a statue and moving it down a block or moving it somewhere else is not erasing history, in my, my opinion. But, okay, that's his argument. Why we should remove Confederate monuments. This is from a former history teacher. As a proud former history teacher, here's why I think Confederate monuments should be removed from our public squares. All history is instructive and worthy of study, but not all history is worthy of honor. I'm sorry, that's a brilliant phrase right there. We must never forget, hide, nor stop learning from the ugliness of our history. But we must also be careful that the ugly not be exhibited in places of honor. Monuments in our public squares that celebrate a wrong and an un-American cause in a positive light have no place. They belong in our museums as a reminder that a wrong took place and should not be repeated. I don't want my grandchildren passing a Confederate memorial and thinking that a cause is somehow worthy of honor because it is not. Removing Confederate monuments is not removing history. It is removing a dishonorable cause from a place of honor. Let's move those statues that celebrate a cause we have as we as Americans have long since rejected to a museum so we can learn from them, not celebrate them. Well, you know how I, I agree with that. That's wonderfully written and there's one that wants to get political so this latest uproar over destruction of confederate monuments has me very concerned if these folks on the far left I am not on the far left are this upset about poet past slavery in history and they are so offended why not start at the top gather together this gentleman says Travel to Egypt and start with the pyramids. Tear them all down and then move to the next stop. When you finally get to the U.S., then we may, as a country, understand. Till then, I just see whiny five-year-olds wanting to have their way. I just don't understand my country anymore. Well, I'm sorry, sir. Don't really understand what you're saying. Because I'm not trying to do what you're saying. Uh, this lady says, if we abolish all the Civil War statues and the Confederate flag, rename all the schools, parks, buildings, highways, and counties of names connected with Confederacy, then will history be rewritten that there was never slavery in America? Again, I don't understand that, but okay, that's that's a question. I can't answer it because I don't understand it. Many of the Civil War military men were formerly Union soldiers with great service records. Yes, they were, but their service in the Civil War has erased that fact in our history. No, it hasn't. That's <laughs> not erase the fact in our history. Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't. It's not a race from history. It's there in the history books. I knew that Robert E. Lee served with distinction in the military. And she goes on. President Lincoln would have rather had Robert E. Lee than U.S. Grant Lee, the Union Army. Yes. Yes, that's true. But Lee chose to side with Virginia against the United States and the Constitution he had sworn to defend. thats That was his choice, and to some, that was an honorable thing to do, and there you go. That's fine. How many Americans know that Arlington National Cemetery was the home of Robert E. Lee and his wife before the Civil War? A lot of them do. It's in the history books. It's part of history. We're not erasing history. Or some, As some want to erase the offensive reminders of Civil War reminders, as we see them, Will we be doomed to repeat it once the history is gone? I guarantee you, 
this is going a completely different way when I thought I was going to go through. No, it's not. The fact that people are standing up and the people that are standing up saying, get this done. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen again. I must ask one question. Uh, another lady says, why did all of the statues, street names, parks, buildings, and monuments become so offensive that they must be torn down or renamed? The ones pushing all of this rely on feelings and political correctness and not on facts we can learn from. Okay. Um, okay, that's her opinion. I'm not referring to the African Americans in this statement. Where does this all stop? Next, it will be freedom of speech because someone isn't speaking politically correct. We shouldn't judge history with emotions or being politically correct. Okay, that's fair enough. I'm not. We judge our history correctly so we won't repeat mistakes of the past. I'm asking the African-American community to forgive my ancestors for being wrong. And may we all learn to walk in respect, grace, and love. Um, that's, That's a nice request. And... I have no comment on that other than they want to do that. That's fine. But that's not the issue. The statue represents something. It's the point I've made this entire episode. Let's see. I think I'm about done going through these. I'm going to move on past the letters of the editor. You get the gist of it. Erasing history or we're moving something that's dishonorable out of a place of honor to be educational somewhere else. There's a picture and you can find it and I'll, I'll try to share it on the website. If I post these notes there, I'm not sure if I'm going to or not. You can find it. It's a picture of, group of people in Dallas, Texas on July 10th, 2016 after the multiple police shootings. Horrible night. And it was at a it was at a Black Lives Matter protest following the shootings. And it shows a group of people of black and white hugging one of them wearing a Confederate flag. That's a complex picture. History is complex. We've hit that earlier. Human beings are complex. And after reading through the, the letters to the editor, there's just there is no cookie cutter understanding of how people think or how pretty much anything happened. But it all involves understanding context and perspective. Why people would willingly want images that remind others of a devastating part of the distant and recent past is complicated. I can't explain my neighbor to anybody else. There are people in my family that don't understand me. There are some actually pretty upset the fact that I've done some of the things I've done, said some of the things I said, believe some of the things I believe. And, uh, you know, I respect the, their right to do that, but you want to have a conversation, we'll have a conversation about it. Um, 
I believe a big part of it has to do with education, communication, develop, developing empathy, and actually listening to others without attacking immediately. In my life, I've had some pretty deep conversations with people that think very differently about a lot of issues, and they, they were rarely fights. In fact, the majority of them never were. Because we talked and we listened. And while sometimes we don't settle the issue, we usually agree that we all care about the most important fundamental things in life. We just need to get past the baggage that others have put upon us over time. But we also have to open our mind and step beyond ourselves to try to understand someone else's perspective. This, that isn't being weak. It's empowering. It's letting yourself think for yourself instead of being inundated by opinions on social media and making knee-jerk reactions. I might be wrong in some of my thoughts about moving the statues. I don't think I am. But I am willing to listen to counter-arguments that aren't loaded with accusations and hate. Sophia A. Nelson is an author and a journalist. She's also black. In 2017, she wrote an opinion piece saying, Don't take down Confederate monuments. Here's why. I disagree with her, but I respect her opinion and the way she shares it. She wrote that she disagrees based on First Amendment rights issues. It's confusing to me to me, because I've dug deep into the state's Jewish histories. And, and in the next sentence, she has a problem with, quote, the Confederate flag because it was a waving symbol of hate, rebellion, and division flying over modern state capitals throughout the South. That said, she has no problem with people wearing Confederate flag symbols on their hats, shirts, or flying in their yards. That is free speech, and I agree. I find it distasteful, but it is free speech. Her argument ultimately, however, comes back to where I used to be, that the monuments can be educational tools. I don't agree. I've covered this. But she did say something that I definitely agree with. I don't fear 150-year-old statues of old, dead, white men. What I fear is the hatred we see in real time in 2017 on social media and in our political rhetoric. I am 100% in agreement with her on that. I wonder what the opinion of a 150-year-old dead, revered old white man would be. And luckily, I found a statement from the celebrated hero of the Confederacy, none other than General Robert E. Lee himself. When asked to attend a gathering to mark sites for granite monuments to commemorate actions at the battlefield of Gettysburg, he declined and added the following, quote, I believe if there, I could not add anything material to the information existing on the subject. And then he goes and says this, I think it wiser, moreover, not to keep open the sores of war, but to follow the examples of those nations who endeavor to obliterate the marks of civil strife, to commit to oblivion the feelings engendered. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, R.E. Lee. Now, how could a Confederate statue proponent spend this to their favor? I don't see how his words could be made any more clear. Obliterate the marks of civil strife. You can read the full statement online by searching for the September 3rd, 1869 issue of the Republican Vindicator. I'd also like to share a quote from the Southern Poverty Law Center regarding the issue of Confederate statues, and I'm going to close this out here. The argument that the Confederate flag and other displays represent heritage, not hate, ignores the near-universal heritage of African Americans whose ancestors were enslaved by the millions in the South. 
It trivializes their pain, their history, and their concerns about racism, whether it's the racism of the past or that of today. From what I've seen recently, that very end of the sentence is a big problem with many Confederate flag wavers and statue lovers. They don't believe there's a connection to racism. And that is where some like me differ with others like them. It's a very controversial issue. This is a very long episode. I did not touch on everything I wanted to. There's so much more information that could be shared. I'd reached out to some people and um, if they want to share in the future, they, they're welcome to. I can share it on the uh, Texas History List website. Um, and again, this I didn't do this to attack or anger anybody, but to share lessons that I've learned. Texas History Lessons is about me learning and then trying to share what I learned. You don't have to agree with me. I'm not that kind of person. But I hope that some of the, what I shared, maybe if you were on one side or the other and it makes you think a little bit different, you can reach out to me at texashistorylessons at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter. Just look up Texas History Lessons on Twitter. It's at Texas History L. Uh, we have a Facebook group. Please feel free to join that and share stuff you 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 you're learning or comments about things on there. Um, it's not all about me, believe me. I, I want to hear other people's comments. I will not tolerate some of the stuff I see on social media if it if it gets to the Texas the group. We're we're about civility and learning together and respectfully disagreeing. And if you get into a fight, you take it off that page. I want to thank everybody for listening to the show. I want to thank everybody for supporting me while I worked on this. It was a, it was a very hard episode to put together. I want to thank my wife, who is one of the fundamental reasons that I started to see things differently about while I understood the the lies that have been shared she's one that helped me see the perspective that what the statue actually represents is not what it doesn't matter what it represents for me it, it is what it represents for somebody else and you gotta you gotta look at that so thanks to everybody um and um until next time i want to thank um Jay, I want to thank Ron, I want to thank Kay, and I want to thank my newest Patreon supporter, Aaron, who has made some wonderful suggestions that I'm really excited to get to. He made about four or five different suggestions for episodes, and I'm, I'm, I'm eager to get to all of them as bonus episodes. The first one I'm going to attack is about the Texas Hill Country towns, the history of them a place that I love and a topic that I love. And um, so, yeah, feel free to, to hit me up with suggestions or comments like that. Thanks again. Everybody take care of yourselves. Be kind to one another. Try to learn from one another. And uh, we'll see you next time on Texas History Lessons. Adios.
Back behind Brad Morgan, our drummer back there, is the Alabama State flag. Ironically enough, he grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. But the other four of us grew up in North Alabama. And back in the 1860s, my great-great-granddad got drafted into the Confederate Army. And he was none too happy about it. He was just a poor dirt farmer trying to feed his family and hang on to a little piece of land in northern Lauderdale County, Alabama. He was a good man. He was an honest man. He was a God-fearing man. He didn't read the papers much or keep up with the local politics of the day. He sure the fuck didn't own no slaves or believe in any of that shit. That was for the rich people. But one day he was out working on the farm and all these men in blue uniforms came marching through. And they, and they stole a bunch of his chickens and they killed one of his cows and they started trying to loot the old home place and he sneaked a gun out. He said, God damn it, I'm going to go out and kill me some of these Yankees. And they sent him about 30 miles down the road to a place called Shiloh. And he got shot there. And the bullet went all the way through his body and came out the other side. But fortunately for my sorry ass, it didn't hit no vital organs and he lived to tell the tale. And back in them days, if you got shot, what they'd do is take a long piece of iron and they'd hold it in the fire until it was red hot and then they'd stick it in the wound to stop the bleeding. It was called cauterizing. And I was raised by my grandmother and my great uncle. And they still have fond and vivid memories of their childhood. And their granddaddy coming over for Christmas dinner. And telling them stories about the war. And raising up his shirt showing them his wound this song's about the misunderstood people of the Southland this song's called The Southern Thing about my southern roots and about three guitars and about my big old lamps it ain't rained in weeks but the weather sure feels down and about excuses or alibis and about no cotton fields or cotton picking line and about the races the crying shame to the fucking rich man, all poor people look the same. Don't get me wrong. 
just ain't right May not look strong But I ain't afraid to fight You wanna live Another day Stay out the way of southern things Ain't about no hatred Better raise a glass It's a letter about some rebels But it ain't about the past Ain't about no foolish pride Ain't about no flag Hate's the only thing That my truck would want to drag You think I'm dumb Maybe not half right You wonder how I sleep at night Proud of the glory Stare down the same duality of the southern thing Christmas night Got shot at Shiloh Thought it died long From a Yankee bullet Listen 30 miles from home And no plantations In the family tree Didn't I believe in slavery Thought that all men should be free But who are these soldiers Marching through my land his bride could hear the cannons and she worried about her man. I heard the story as the words passed down. Back up some glory in rubble stands. A lot has changed Robert Ely Martin Luther King We met a long way Rather from the flames Stay out of the way of southern things Southern thing, stay out the way of the southern thing, stay out the way of the southern thing. <laughs> <laughs>